This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 31st, 2017, and Caleb Brown. Hong Kong was a barren island at the end of World War II, but under the direction of Sir John Cooperthwaite, Hong Kong became a powerhouse of global commerce. How did it happen? Neil Monnery is author of Architect of Prosperity, Sir John Cooperthwaite, and the Making of Hong Kong. We spoke earlier this month. Describe Hong Kong in about 1945. Well, uh, at that point, of course, the Second World War was coming to an end, and uh, Hong Kong had been under occupation by the Japanese since they had invaded in '42. Uh, the population had fallen from about one and a half million to around 600,000, so there'd been a massive exodus uh, of people, and almost everything that was of value had been uh, taken or, or used. So it was really quite a desolate place, I think. All right, so what was its... Uh proprietary relationship with uh, various countries? Well, it had been a a British colony for about 100 years prior to that. And the British were extremely keen that Hong Kong should remain a colony at the end of the Second World War. Although there were, of course, other forces, uh, in particular, revolutionary Chinese forces uh, nearby. Uh, But the British uh, got there in time, I think, and uh, re-established control, which was for them an issue of prestige and a continuation of that role from before the war. So you you mentioned that there were uh, Chinese revolutionary forces uh, right there. Why didn't they simply seize it? I think they had many other other things on their uh, mind. And there was a a sort of a broad agreement that that would be uh, all right. All right. So tell me about who John... Cooperthwaite was. That's the British pronunciation. Uh, Americans might say Cowperthwaite, but who was he? Well, he he was somebody who had studied uh, classics uh, for quite a long time, Greek and Latin. Uh, he actually had two degrees in uh, classics, uh, spent six years studying that. And probably if there hadn't if the war hadn't occurred, he would probably have ended up as a professor of uh, Greek or, or or Latin somewhere. Uh, But instead, he joined the British colonial office, as it was then, uh, and uh, in particular was appointed uh, to this role called Hong Kong Cadet, which was the elite group of administrators. Uh, He was just about to set off to Hong Kong when it fell to the Japanese, so he was fortunate in that regard not being interned uh, for the uh, period of the war, and instead went to spend uh, that period in Sierra Leone, but come the liberation of Hong Kong in 1945. That's where he went. All right. So what was his role in making Hong Kong uh, into the powerhouse that we know of it as today? Well, he was really at the center of uh, economic policy for 25 years. Um, The first few years as director of supplies, trade and industry, and then 10 years as deputy financial secretary and a further 10 as financial secretary. And during that period, he put together this uh, very special set of economic policies. What was his role in the formulation of post-World War II economic policy for uh, Hong Kong? Well, he was uh, deputy financial secretary for 10 years and then financial secretary for 10 years. So he played a very central role uh, in formulating that. Okay. So what were the, what were the policies that, uh, that contributed so mightily to Hong Kong's growth? So I think there were four main areas. Uh, The first was allowing private enterprise to uh, determine where to invest. Uh, The second was to have competitive open markets. The third, a small government. 
and the fourth was uh, fiscal conservatism. Okay, so what did that look like? I mean, in the, in the early going, we we think of Hong Kong as a rock for the most <laughs> yeah. part that did not did not have a lot of. Uh, natural resources to speak of uh, and uh, was essentially abandoned in a way by the the Japanese and whatever was of value was uh, taken or wrecked. I mean, I visited Hong Kong and it's it's stunning. Stunning nowadays, yeah. So what, what happened? Uh, freedom and uh, the ability for the Hong Kong people to uh, set up businesses and to optimize those businesses over time uh, really uh, – a release of that entrepreneurial spirit. So what do we see between, say, 1951 and maybe the mid-70s in terms of like economic performance? Well, though, post the war, uh, Hong Kong was still a relatively poor country. So by 1950, it had a GDP per capita about 30% of the UK. By 1997, it had matched the UK, and by today, it's 140% of the UK in GDP per capita. So um, it has been a gradual, um, rapid growth, but a gradual progression to that prosperity. So how how did the relationship between uh, Great Britain and Hong Kong change over that time period? One of the things that the Hong Kong administration were extremely keen to do was to be financially independent of the UK. <laughs> they, they perceived the influence of the UK uh, to be, in, in terms of economic policy, not to be a very positive effect. So they were increasingly independent. Uh, even by 1950, they were largely economically independent. Um, and of course, in 1997, Hong Kong returned to China. Okay. What was the leading up to that? Uh, how did the people of Hong Kong view China, knowing that uh, that country would be returned to the mainland as uh, a vessel? I, I don't know enough about how the people of Hong Kong felt uh, about that. I, I think the stuff I've read says they're a very pragmatic uh, group of people. And uh, of course, <clears throat> there has been this period of 50 years uh, that has been set aside between 1997 and 50 years later uh, to run two systems, uh, retaining some of the elements in the uh, basic law of Hong Kong. But, um, you know, clearly it was a tricky period for a period around that time. So why were these policies adopted when they were uh, by Great Britain? Why were they allowed to take root in the way that they did? Was it just that Great Britain was not really in the empire business anymore or <laughs> yeah. um, what what made these policies happen where other you know uh, pieces of property owned by Great Britain don't don't have these policies well, well some do to some extent like Singapore but of course you're right uh, there's something very special about the situation in uh, Hong Kong the the policies I think came partly from necessity. I mean, as you said earlier, there, there were relatively few resources, if any, uh, in Hong Kong. And so they needed to uh, create their success uh, in that context. They couldn't rely on Britain to fund them uh, large sums of money because Britain was also, after the Second World War, uh, in d- difficult financial situation. And so I think the first wave of policies was really driven by necessity. Um, really not being able to find sources of money easily and uh, therefore having to rely on the uh, population to step up. 
the choices that were made after that as Hong Kong became more prosperous are in many ways for me the most interesting point because at that point they started to get the pressure from the UK and elsewhere to adopt a welfare state, to have higher levels of taxation, to have more industrial planning, which as you remember is very popular in the 1950s and 60s, uh, to select industries that they thought they would succeed in. And all of this they turned away from. Instead, they carried on with the policy of, broadly speaking, laissez-faire that they had adopted earlier. So it's that period, I think, in the Cooperthwaite period, uh, that these key choices were made, which hold to some extent true even to today. Do we have a sense of why those choices were made, why they did not succumb to the pressure of welfare states and higher taxes? Well, they... uh, there, again, there were a number of reasons. One of the key ones that I, I, I've uh, sort of found in the research is Cooperthwaite uh, and his colleagues, his uh, predecessor as financial secretary and his successor, so this is really the finance ministers over a 30-year period, were fairly consistent in their belief uh, that the best way to increase the prosperity of the ordinary people in Hong Kong was this set of policies. So it was really, if you like, a a policy-driven argument and it relied on the evidence coming in year after year that actually these policies were succeeding and as it happens, that evidence did come in year after year. Well, not year after year, but period after period. And so they were justified in their policies. Uh, They were empirical and they were, of course, civil servants. So if the policies had failed and didn't work, they would have have, uh, adapted or adjusted them. But whereas in the UK, the civil service was helping nationalize industries, uh, was helping uh, do massive industrial planning, uh, selecting winners of the future, and so on. At the same time, a very similar group of people were finding that they thought a totally different answer applied in Hong Kong. And that, I think, is one of the intriguing things. And they were very resilient about defending that. They came under huge pressure, Cooperthwaite and his colleagues, from people like uh, the civil service, the ministers who visited from Britain, even the prime ministers in Britain to uh, both push tax rates up and to move much more towards the model that was being adopted in the UK. Uh, they they uh, held out against that pressure uh, and were very resilient in the face of it. How important was it that Hong Kong during this critical growth period that it's experienced uh, and the adoption of these sort of hands-off policies, how important was it that Hong Kong was multiple continents away from their rulers in Great Britain? Um, well, that probably did help. Yeah, yeah that's probably, probably been quite helpful. Um, I know that uh, when, <clears throat> when uh, the civil government started just after the war, uh, the only way of communicating with London was via the military uh, networks. Um, and the person who was at that point in charge uh, of the civil administration asked the admiral who was in charge of this if he could uh, uh, prevent too much signalling happening between London and Hong Kong. And he agreed that he would say that for technical reasons, uh, having having traffic more than once a month was quite impossible. <laughs> so I'm sure it helped a great deal uh, to be a little bit away um, as they were adopting these policies. And clearly when ministers visited, it was a, uh, there was a significant discussion as to 
why it was that Britain was heading one way, not just Britain, but Britain, France, Germany, many, many countries, uh, when Hong Kong wasn't. What do you think are the lessons of the development of, of Hong Kong? It's It sort of seems like a pretty unique case, but are there uh, lessons that we can draw for other countries that would like to uh, discover the, the path to a sort of sustainable growth and improving the lot of the average person? I think that the basic building block that Cooperthwaite identified was that the private companies um, acting in markets uh, in Hong Kong could reinvest very effectively and they could invest at a high rate of return. And therefore, if he left money with them through low taxations and, uh, policies and light regulation, that money would come back compounded for him and for society in the future. So the key thing really is back to the classical economist idea, Adam Smith, around whether there are sectors uh, which can have higher returns and whether the market mechanism combined with competitive forces will drive people towards that in a way that governments don't really do. It's It's not usual for governments to have very high return investments. Uh, they generally tend to be lower, whereas uh, private companies clearly uh, try and target that. One one thing that is probably worth mentioning is that uh, Cooperthwaite was very clear that it was competitive markets that were critical, not private enterprise per se. So if there was a private monopoly or a private firm operating with market failure, he was extremely happy to regulate that uh, or to go in and uh, deal with the issues of, of that. A good example of that being house building in Hong Kong. Uh, when you visited, I don't know if you uh, noticed that there are these huge uh, skyscrapers of apartments. Uh, about half of the Hong Kong population is actually housed in government-owned housing, which is quite different from the laissez-faire, if you like, elsewhere. And the reason for that is that the government, Cooperthwaite included, didn't believe that the private sector would actually deliver the low-cost housing that was needed for the large numbers of immigrants that were coming from China. And so the government intervened. Uh, so he was not against intervention. Uh, in the end, his policies were described by his successor as positive non-intervention, which is it generally doesn't make sense to intervene, but you need to think it through very carefully. Uh, and if it's a free market with free uh, commercial companies operating within it, likely they will come to the best set of resource allocation decisions. Were people in mainland China relatively free to move to and live in Hong Kong? Uh, not in theory, no, but there, there was a uh, there was a exodus. At various points, they had so many people coming that they would uh, try and control that. But the numbers were quite large, um, and, and uh, th that happened over many years. Um, so at various points, it would be tightened up uh, on either side of the border. Uh, but it was a constant issue. And one of the reasons why the administrations time after time wanted to come back to delivering very high levels of economic growth was to ensure that there were jobs for the people, the very fast growing population that was coming in. Very generally, can you describe the uh, level of service and the kind of government that actually ran Hong Kong during this period between the end of World War II and 1997? Yeah, so so obviously, as as we've said, they, the government was very keen to limit expenditure so that it could uh, enable funds to remain within the private sector for reinvestment for future growth. Uh, but there was still extensive uh, use of government uh, support in education, in health, in housing, uh, as we've discussed, and the like. Uh, but the 
key thing really was that uh, they wanted over time to have a steady increase in the social provision and the welfare provision within society. So in 1948, uh, the government expenditure per per person in Hong Kong, in Hong, in today's Hong Kong dollars, was only about one thousand three hundred dollars. But by 1997, it had become thirty thousand dollars, so nearly a you know twenty fold increase. Um, and that was over that time because of increasing provision of of, of uh, education, of schools, of universities, uh, of uh, healthcare facilities, uh, and the like. Neil Monnery is author of Architect of Prosperity, Sir John Cooperthwaite, and the Making of Hong Kong. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>